Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. We are joined tonight by an outstanding (laughs) guest, Dr. Paul Aronson, to discuss febrile infants, perfect timing with new AAP guidelines coming out. Um, Jess, one of our amazing producers, here to join us, along with her husband, Sam Mazur, here at Brown. What a duo, power couple. Does one of you want to give a quick introduction about Dr. Aronson? I guess I'm doing it. So Dr. Aronson is an associate professor of pediatrics and of emergency medicine at Yale. His primary areas of research are the evaluation and management of the febrile young infant and shared decision-making with parents in the emergency department. He is also the investigator for several multi-center research networks. We are so excited to dive into a deep discussion of febrile infants, the new AEP guidelines. But first, let's remind you about the show. Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Aronson. Dr. Aronson teaches us about the new 22 to 20 day old age group, new antibiotic recommendations, and other major changes in the guidelines and the evidence behind them. So without further ado, let's get to it. You guys are gonna get ready for a hot baby summer. I'm sweating already. Welcome to the show, Dr. Paul Aronson. We're so excited to have you. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We feel very lucky to have you and, and to share your expertise. And before we get into the content, it'd be great to kind of learn a little bit more about you. And so we were hoping to just ask a few questions to let the audience get to know you a little bit better. Can you give yourself a, like a one-liner introduction for, for our listeners? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm a pediatric emergency medicine physician by training, um, but thinking more about personal life, I'm an uh, avid sports fan. I like the outdoors. I'm a father of two uh, elementary school age children, which is where I spend most of my time. Um, and, uh, and my residency program, uh, which I'm one of the associate program directors, it's often joked that I, my lectures go on for nine hours about febrile infants, Well, I'll try to keep this to closer to 60 minutes. That's a perfect, perfect. Are you uh, a fan of the Olympics? Have you been watching the Olympics this week? I have been watching the Olympics, someone on tape delay. We've been trying to watch it. My kids are really into it, obviously. Um, I think there's been some um, heroic performances also shine the light on mental health, very important as well. So I think there's been some yeah. sort of bigger picture, bigger picture things that have come out of it as well. Shout out to Simone Biles. That's right. Usually I ask a question, but I'm going to yield the floor because we have two producers today. All right, I'll go first. So, you know, I'm a budding pediatric emergency medicine physician. So I'd love to know um, what your favorite piece of advice you've ever received is. Um, So I would I would say that it's less advice and more that I've been very fortunate to have a lot of great role models and mentors who uh, and specifically, I think, within pediatrics and also outside of pediatrics, my parents included in this of people who've been very successful professionally, but never at the expense of their family. And I think that to me is sort of less advice and more just role modeling and sort of implicit advice that family first and professional. We, we all we all of us have important jobs to do. And that's uh, we should you know put our full energy into our work, but also to make sure that every decision we make uh, benefits our, our family in the big picture and, and not to put them at, at any secondary to our to our job. So that's what the sort of role modeling I've received. And it's certainly been something I try to carry with me. I love that. That really resonates. 
Speaking of family members, uh, Jess's husband, would you like to ask a question? <laughs> I'll steal. I'll steal. I'll steal from Chris. This is a Chris's favorite question, but since he's ceding the floor to me, um, so what's your favorite failure? Do you think, and what do you think you learned from it? Yeah, well, um, so I guess related to family, I would say, even though I'm a pediatrician by training, um, having kids, I've learned one million times more about parenting from being a parent. Um, and so I would say I've, I think I've probably failed a lot as a parent as I've gone through the learning experience. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite because I want to be as good a parent as possible, but it will, it has helped me be a better pediatrician to relate to parents to say, hey, it's okay. We make mistakes, like we try our best. And so I will say that's my ongoing daily failure uh, in trying Trying to be a good parent. I love that. Um, great. So today we're, we're getting to talk about uh, a topic that has come up as a recommended topic we should discuss for a very long time, the diagnosis and treatment of a febrile infant. And the time of this could not be better with the new AAP guidelines just coming out. And before we get started on talking about specific cases and where to go, can you Talk to us a little bit about some of the highlights of the new AAP guidance and and how the the guidelines are broken down. Yeah, so I'm gonna you know give certainly a lot of credit and gratitude to the uh, authors of the guideline who worked for many many years uh, to to get this published multidisciplinary from general pediatricians to uh, emergency medicine physicians to hospitalists to um, to certainly pediatric infectious disease and the whole uh, subcommittee on febrile infants. So. I think to me that some of the notable things I take from it is one is that it's broken out of three age groups. So we've often thought of febrile infants, at least in the emergency department hospital setting, as 28 days or below and 29 days or above. And they've broken down into three age groups, which I think is, is really interesting and important. Um, they've also, I think, given recommendations that are meant to sort of be balanced with a clinician and a parent's own risk tolerance. So it's sort of saying, here's the best evidence we have for X, Y, or Z decision. But a lot of this comes down to risk tolerance and practice setting. And I use an example. I practice in the emergency department where we do things very differently than perhaps someone who works in a general pediatrics office in the community, especially one that's not directly connected to a tertiary care center. I think that's another notable aspect of the guideline. And the last thing I'll sort of mention is that uh, white blood cell count, which is the classic inflammatory marker that has been used in the risk stratification of febrile infants for many years, is specifically not part of the guideline. And so even though something like procalcitonin is being more widely adopted, the fact that white blood cell count is not part of it, it's only going to be a change for uh, some people as they think about it. So those are just a few of the many sort of, I think, highlights from the guideline. I think one of the things that struck me when I looked at the guidelines was why does it say this is for 88 to 60 day old infants? Like where did they come up with that and how did they decide on these ranges? Yeah, so the guideline, as you said, includes eight to 60 days and, um, and they have a, a discussion in there about the sort of seven day and below, so the first week of life. And I think that that age group outside the NICU, so, so uh, infants who've gone home and come back, is just a higher risk group. Uh, early onset sepsis, particularly due to group B uh, streptococcus, is um, sort of more prevalent in that first week of life. And so I think the thought is that certainly I think all of us in the emergency department, we see a child, in the, uh, infant in the first week of life, we're going to sort of really apply sort of the full workup, meaning blood, urine, CSF, admit them at antibiotics because they're higher risk. But I think the guidelines felt like that group was just more high risk. We didn't need to have a guideline for them. Everyone should sort of do what they've always done. Um, and so that's why that group is excluded. And are there certain groups that are excluded specifically? Is this um, things like premature infants or other, are there other categories that it's, are excluded from these guidelines? Yeah. So um, the guideline is meant to be applied to the 8 to 60 days old, you know, the temperature of 38 or, or above uh, in the past 24 hours or in the ED. 
um, full term uh, and then well appearing. And sort of from that, there's several exclusions. You mentioned prematurity is one, chronic medical condition, things like ill appearance, actually diagnosis of bronchiolitis, um, just because the risk of, of bacterial infection is is somewhat different in that particular sort of infectious group. Um, if you have specific bacterial infections, if you're highly expected of having HSV, but then there are um, uh, a few things actually actually notable. So one is if a child's got an immunization in the past 48 hours, the guideline is not necessarily applied to them. Um, however, infants who have a positive viral test or URI symptoms uh, do fall in the guidelines. So it's really sort of try and take out these sort of very specific bacterial infections, kids who are very ill-appearing, kids who have higher risk of bacterial infection due to chronic conditions, but then really meant to apply to that sort of well-appearing, no clear uh, source outside of a sort of upper respiratory infection in, who, in who's full term. So we still need guidelines for the febrile infant with clinical bronchiolitis that might have something else going on. But for, for the rest of us who are, are clear, straightforward, full term, this is where we can turn. Yeah, and the bronchiolitis is is interesting because um, I think that there's been you know literature, and I won't spend a lot of time talking about it in the past. And I think that the thought is just that with some of the newer risk stratification algorithms in particular, that you, I think we probably need more research to decide how to best manage those infants and people do things differently. So I think they sort of, just sort of took those out just to say, hey, those guidelines probably don't apply. And that being said, I don't. I anticipate that people still may apply it to that age group, even though the guideline does say they're not um, part of the guideline specifically. One of the things that we, we really focus on as a show and an organization is uh, identifying and addressing disparities that exist in certain parts of medicine. And in febrile infants, you know, coming right from the start, are there clear disparities that exist in, in diagnosis or in treatment or in other aspects of this illness? Yeah, so it's a really important question, certainly in medicine in general. And I think with febrile infants, um, uh, the literature out there has not been a lot in terms of this. Um, there's, uh, there was one, one study, for example, um, out of uh, Boston from a couple years ago that looked at the first month of life and was there a disparity in terms of time to antibiotics um, for, uh, for neonates. And they didn't find one in that single center study, but I think this is a question that needs further study. And I think when we think about guidelines, it's meant to be evidence-based, which meant it should be, we should be applying it equally to everybody. But I think as we think about applying guidelines, implementing guidelines, using these recommendations in practice, we have to ensure that we're doing equitably. And I think that there's, um, I imagine there's going to be important research coming out that is assessing, are there disparities? Meaning, are we doing things differently based on race, uh, based on language preference, for example? Um, and I think that's one piece is what's the current state of it? And then two, sort of going forward to ensure that any sort of efforts that we make to standardize care are done equitably. And so I think there's a lot of work still to be done because uh, it hasn't been explored as much with this field yet. All right. Do we want to jump into our first case now? Age 8 to 21 day old infants. So we are seeing Carly. She's a 14 day old baby girl who woke up this morning and was fussy. And so dad took a rectal temp. It was 101 um, Fahrenheit. So called the pediatrician, and the pediatrician referred them into the ER to be evaluated. So I'd love to just hear from you. How do you explain to a family who has a brand new baby and they're in the emergency department, like, what are you worried about with this fever and why was it so important that they came to see you? Yeah, so I think this first initial um, conversation with a family, whether it's in the clinic, whether it's in the emergency department, whether it's in the hospital, it's really important. I mean, for a parent who's, in this case, 14, of a 14-day-old infant who's been at home for a week or two, who's probably exhausted, hasn't slept, and now they're back in the hospital with a baby who's febrile. And I think on one hand, we could easily sort of walk in the room and say, 
things like, you know, what we're worried about, which is what I do say, we're worried about several types of bacterial infections, infections of the urine, infections of the blood, sort of most severe, but the rarest is infection of the, of the brain. But I think we also have to normalize it because I think for a parent to hear those things is very scary. And then to then sort of follow that up with, well, based because we're worried about these infections, here's the test we're going to do. I think to some parents say this is actually common. Not that every baby goes through this, but we see this a lot. It's something that I've taken care of hundreds of babies in, in this setting. The good news, you know, most babies, um, you know, have a benign infection and will get, and will, and will get better. But we do these tests because there's, there's this risk of these more serious infections. Um, we are here to support you through that. We want to answer any questions that you have. And I think that's really important thinking about parents of different backgrounds, parents of different health literacy, to make sure that we're doing things like teach back and just to make sure that we are repeating information. And we've done some qualitative work with parents and just that repetition of information, just the reassurance, those are the types of things that, that, that they need to help them through the process versus just giving them data. And here's what we're going to do. That, and then you leave the room, that can be extremely scary for a parent. And so I think we just have to support them through the process and keep checking in and make sure that they're staying along with us through this, what's understandably a stressful process for them. I have one question. So, you know, say I'm the pediatrician field in this call. Um, you know, is is it just the fever that's that's going to make me say, all right, there are 14 days in the fever. This has got to be the ED. Or is there, are there any type of things that I should be like, okay, well, yes, that's a fever, but maybe not. Like, and what what is your, your cutoff of fever, and what does it mean to be febrile? Yeah. So this is something that I will say that in the guidelines that were just published are meant to be applied to uh, pediatricians and practitioners across settings. Um, and so we know from prior literature that pediatricians in the community sometimes manage infants a little bit differently than infants in the emergency department because it's a different practice setting. They know the family. There's lots of other variables. So I say all that because when I'm thinking about it, I think in most settings, a 14-day-old, and that falls into that 8 to 21-day age group, which is you know the highest risk age group after that first week of life. And so the fever is very low threshold, 38 or 100.4, measured at home, ideally rectally, though I think that in this age group, given their risk, I think a lot of us would do the same for an axillary temperature, for example, though there is a gray area with certain types of temperatures. Uh, so 38 or above or 100.4. And I think I would say fever alone is enough to have that child be evaluated. And that would be consistent with the guideline that this child needs an evaluation for their urine, for their blood, for their CSF. And then ultimately in this age group, the recommendation is to be admitted on intravenous antibiotics until we know cultures are, are, are sort of uh, negative, hopefully. And I think actually as a pediatrician, it's important to sort of hopefully prep the family because the family may not have any expectation. It's great that they called. It means they were aware. They probably got newborn instructions, but they may not be aware of what's about to happen. I think some families have, again, that repetition is very helpful. And so a trusted voice and a pediatrician they know can help talk them through it even before they get to the emergency room and they're meeting a bunch of strangers like myself or others. So when you do get met in the emergency room, um, just kind of going back to Carly, we know that she woke up fussy. That's not really much of a story. So we're going to try to get a more of a history, more of an exam. Anything that you see that would make you feel more or really less concerned about a bacterial infection in an infant? Yeah. So what's very interesting about, or interesting, unique, I guess, about this age group um, is that uh, clinical appearance both is probably not reliable, meaning we all have sort of different interpretations of it, but there's been some nice studies, uh, including one, you know, several years ago by uh, Lise Nigrovich uh, through the PCARN group, our Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, who's done a lot of research in this area, as well as even research before that by Doug Baker and others. It basically showed that clinical exam alone does not exclude a bacterial infection. So I say all that because things like, are the baby fussy? Is the baby feeding? Those things are important, but the fever alone 
could mean a bacterial infection. And so in the more recent study, I think something about 10% of infants who had a bacterial infection were well-appearing by something called the Yale Observation Scale, which is used in older kids. Say if an older child is well-appearing, they very unlikely have a bacterial infection, but this age group is different. Um, and so social cues, they don't have the social cues to be able to sort of reliably sort of uh, assess their clinical appearance. So the other important, I think, historical factors are, do they have other risk factors for having a bacterial infection? So back to the exclusions for the guideline, do they have a chronic condition, a urinary tract problem, immunodeficiency? Were they born very premature? Um, did the maternal history is important. You know, did, was she tested for group B strep? She should have been. If she was positive, was she treated? Any risk factors for herpes simplex virus? Um, and I think also is also potentially assessing maybe less um, in this age for decision making, but in general is what's the social support for the family as well? Because the child's coming into the hospital, that could be a, a big stressor on the family. But if you're thinking about sending them home, uh, what sort of supports and follow-up they have, and that's sort of down the road. But the initial history is all about the baby's history and, um, and just sort of, I think, prepping the family for what's about to happen. And so one of the things that we're worried about is it seems like the bacterial uh, infections, UTIs, bacteremia, meningitis. What is the actual risk of these bacterial infections in a febrile otherwise well-appearing infant? Is it 90%? You mentioned that, or, or what's the underlying risk of these um, serious bacterial infections, and why should we no longer talk, call them serious bacterial infections? Yeah, so this this was an important change in the guideline. I should have mentioned this up front in terms of the sort of big takeaway. So we classically use this term, serious bacterial infection, or SBI, which classically means the occult infections, meaning no symptoms outside of fever, urinary tract infection, bacteremia, slash sepsis, or bacterial meningitis, but they also include things like pneumonia, cellulitis. I think, and what the sort of literature has shown is that the urinary tract infection is the most common bacterial infection. So of febrile infants overall, about 10% will have a urinary tract infection. On average, some, somewhere around 2 to 3% will have bacteremia, and maybe about 1% will have meningitis. So you know, increasing severity, but decreasing prevalence. So if we, if we lump them all together, a lot of our uh, prediction models and lab tests then are aimed really at urinary tract infection, but we really are worried about missing or conversely treating appropriately is bacteremia and meningitis. So they really separate those two to say urinary tract infection is its own sort of entity. And what we really need to sort of focus on is bacteremia and meningitis, which together are called invasive bacterial infection. And there's a nice graph in the, in the AP guideline that shows the sort of risk by age. And so in the first three weeks, that eight to 21 days, those two infections are about probably about three to 4%. As you get to the 22 to 28 day, more like 3%. Then as you get sort of the older 29 to 60 days, about 2% of those febrile infants will have bacteremia meningitis. So again, pretty rare. And meningitis is more like 0.5% in that older age group. Pretty rare, but um, severe if we, if we miss it, potentially. And so that's why I think we, we do what we do. But the, it goes down sort of steadily over eight, uh, as the child gets older. So knowing those risks, what are we going to do um, to work up these infants? We know kind of like the classic teaching of the blood, the urine, the LP, but um, looking at these kind of new guidelines, what are we going to do? in this um, 8 to 21 day old group. Yep. So I, I think that the overall sort of recommendation for this age group is the same, which you're doing blood, urine, and CSF. What's different is, is a couplefold. This applies to the other age groups as well. And so for urine testing, there's been some literature, and the guideline has adopted this, that we really should only diagnose a urinary tract infection in the setting of a positive urine culture with a certain you know growth of a certain amount of, of colony-forming units plus a positive urinalysis. And there's this concern that if you have a negative urinalysis, no inflammation, but a positive culture, that could be represent asymptomatic bacteria contamination. So what they actually recommend is sending a urinalysis first, and this is all the age groups, and only if that's positive do you send the culture, because what they don't want is a false positive culture. And that's going to be a big change, because I think most of us, certainly in my practice, have always sent the two together, and, it, and we're apt to treat 
any positive culture as long as it meets the colony forming units. That's one. Two, for this age group, for blood, blood culture, but they recommend that inflammatory markers are not needed in most cases since you're already sort of going to be admitting the child and waiting for culture results to come back. Um, and then CSF is, um, is similar. You send culture and then HSV testing with its own sort of category. But in this age group, you would test comprehensively for herpes simplex virus in the setting of risk factors, the child being very ill, having vesicles, some maternal risk factors, uh, things like that, in which case you would test for HSV and start acyclovir. Is there any chance if we just screen for UTI with a UA, we could be missing? Like I heard like kids pee a lot and like maybe they don't build up nitrate or something. Yeah. So the the current definition, and there's been a few studies that have shown this, including another study um, uh, from PCAR and a couple uh, years ago that was published uh, that used the definition now of positive leukocyte esterase or positive nitrate or greater than five white blood cells per high power field. So it's a pretty I would say conservative definition. It was found to be highly sensitive for UTI, not 100%, but also uh, very specific. So the thought is that there is perhaps a small chance of a false negative, but I think they, they, the guideline sort of says more toward that there's a greater chance of a false positive, meaning if the, if the a false positive culture, if the UA is negative, and so that we they sort of err on the side of saying, again, up to clinician interpretation, as, um, but that to use the UA, it's very sensitive, not 100%, uh, and there's a small risk of a false negative, but that's going to be sort of the benefits of that or uh, outweigh the, the sort of risks of treating a lot of children unnecessarily for UTI is how the guideline fell on it. That is going to be a practice change for a lot of us, certainly in the emergency department. And for a patient like this where they're 8 to 21, so we're automatically doing a lumbar puncture, can you walk us through a little bit about what we're looking for that is a red flag? A lot of times I feel like we have a bloody tap. Can we correct for the red blood cells? If it's elevated protein, it, how worrisome is that? How do we, what are some caveats in interpreting an LP in this age group or maybe in, in uh, infants in general? Yeah, so, um, you know, certainly um, awaiting cultural results is the most important test. I think in this age group, one could argue that, you know, that having the cell count could inform your initial antibiotic treatment in terms of whether using meningitic dosing, uh, certain antibiotic choices, but ultimately you're going to be waiting for the, uh, for the culture for definitive treatment. So I think that in terms of CSF white blood cell, and that's the main test that we use to determine do they have CSF pleocytosis, which in terms of how we define that in this age group, there's a different ways. The guideline essentially says above 18. Another study by Joanna Thompson a few years ago uh, through another research network uh, sort of said above 15 seems to be the upper limit of normal somewhere in that sort of upper teens. And if you have that or above that CSF pleocytosis, and unless you have something like an enterovirus positive uh, in the CSF, that you should, one, test for HSV, but also think about bacterial meningitis, even though most of the time it won't be present. So I think in terms of corrections, we do have a, you know, about probably a third at least of, of lumbar punctures are quote-unquote traumatic or have a bloody. Uh, Todd Lyons uh, has uh, done a recent uh, study a couple of years ago where they derived a sort of r red blood cell to white blood cell correction factor. His was 877 to 1, but they recommended sort of rounding it to 1,000 to 1 um, and saying basically every 1,000 red blood cells above 10,000 you know, essentially reduce the white blood cell by 1. The problem is, is that as you do that, it works most of the time and you can reduce the false positives, but there's a small chance that you sort of may correct out and there may be some infants, especially in that first couple of weeks of life, first three weeks of life, who might actually have bacterial meningitis. So the guideline actually says they don't recommend correcting, actually. They recommend using the white blood cell at face value, even though there are correction factors that have been derived, to be cautious and not to correct uh, is what the guideline essentially says. And can I follow up on that? And you mentioned you're really waiting for the LP culture, which made sense to me. If you are one of these stellar residents like Jess was and managed to get a, a 
uh, champagne tap on a 20-day-old. Can you rule out bacterial meningitis with a clear-looking cell count, or is that really a unicorn that we're not even considering? Yeah, so there are... Um there are some cases, both in literature and especially in this first four weeks of life, uh, that's been reported where infant can not have CSF pleocytosis. It could still have meningitis. It's unlikely. And so most infants are going to have pleocytosis. But I think given that, that's why the culture is sort of considered the definitive test. There's other things like, you know, the um, you know, PCR-based tests or sort of um, those type of tests that some centers use. But really, it's the culture is still the gold standard. I will say, too, just in terms of the champagne tap, so I recently... Um, that several months ago, I had a resident who had a champagne tap, and I offered to get her champagne. And she instead had me donate money to our refugee resettlement um, organization. And yeah. so I hope that starts the new trend of donation. So use the money instead of for champagne to donate to good causes. And I thought that was a really nice idea. We're hoping to start wow. the trend. Wow. I had a resident once ask for Miller High Life instead. So, <laughs> so yeah, so there's a range. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> now myself. Um, so outside of those tests, like when would you maybe add like a, a rapid viral panel or a chest x-ray stool studies? Is there a place in all this in terms of the workup? And if so, when and how useful is it? Yeah. So I think in terms of, um, you know, viral testing, um, so there's been some nice studies done over the years that have certainly showed that in terms of viruses, particularly RSV, which we are certainly seeing now, influenza, that children, uh, infants who are febrile who have RSV influenza are at lower risk of bacterial infection. They still have a very similar risk of UTI, but perhaps reduced risk of bacterial meningitis, though the risk is not zero. Viruses like rhinovirus, actually the risk is less different. So, and that just may be due to the sensitivity of rhinovirus. So I say all that because for a while, I think we thought of using viral testing as if a child's RSV positive, especially in the second month of life or someone older, maybe we could do less. But now a lot of the newer risk stratification algorithms don't include automatic lumbar puncture or CSF anyway. And so I think it's a little bit unclear the role of viral testing in terms of risk stratification. Perhaps it could be very valuable in the outpatient setting, for example, if someone's um, you know taking a, uh, a less conservative approach and using viral testing, it seems to be appropriate. But I think we need some more literature on how viral testing changes some of the newer algorithms, step-by-step -step approach, the PCARM prediction rule, for example, which don't include CSF, and how viral testing uh, uh, manage that. In terms of chest x-ray, I would say only in the setting of, of respiratory symptoms. There's been several studies that have shown the risk of pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia in the absence of respiratory setting uh, symptoms is um, very uncommon. Um, and so I say routine chest x-ray not needed. And even if you do find something on x-ray, that's actually where viral testing could be helpful because it's more likely the infiltrates due to RSV or, or, in, or influenza perhaps. Uh, in terms of stool studies, I think in the setting of you know profuse diarrhea, especially if it's bloody, then I would send a, a stool culture. It's going to be uncommon. You have something like salmonella, but it's possible. I've seen it a couple times. And so I really in the setting of enteritis is when I would send stool studies, but not routinely. Are, are we seeing babies this young with COVID positive and getting fevers from that? Yeah, so there's been, um, there was, certainly uh, last year, there was several studies, mostly case series, uh, that came out reporting on clinical features, laboratory features of young febrile infants who are COVID positive. At least, uh, I haven't checked uh, in the past week or two, but for a while I was following it very closely. And my sort of take home is that there was a substantial number of infants who had urinary tract infections who were also COVID positive. I don't remember, and I don't, I didn't, I don't think I saw the risk of like what bacteremia or meningitis. But I think to me, it's just more the challenge is that 
we know that a lot of children can be asymptomatic. So I think so I think right now I would say COVID positive. I would I would do all the infection precautions, but that would not influence my decision making around this, just because we don't know yet um, if that is truly related to the fever, and often it may not be actually. And so I think that that probably does not change the risk calculation too much. And what are the organisms that we're worried about in bacterial infections of a febrile infant, whether it's UTIs or bacteremia and meningitis? Yep. So E. coli is you know now the number one pathogen. Um, often uh, for bacteremia, it may be a urinary source, so it's the most common urinary tract infection pathogen in bacteremia. Also very common in meningitis, though it's second to group B strap. Some of the work uh, we and, and other um, uh, groups have, have done is really E. coli number one, Group B strep number two, the pi meningitis group B strep is a little bit uh, higher, perhaps. Uh, and then after that, um, it's it's a mix of gram positive and gram negative that the infant could be exposed to, sort of in the postnatal world. So Staph aureus, there's this percentage, Enterococcus, strep pneumo, um, uh, so pneumococcus, uh, for example. And then you have some other sort of more uncommon uh, gram negative infections as well, Klebsiella, Enterobacter, etc. But really, I think E. coli is the big one that we see most commonly, followed by group B strep, and then you have these other ones, and that helps inform your antibiotic choices. Yeah. And so when we're trying to treat these infections, I've always been taught, you know, ampicillin and gentamicin, admit them on that in this kind of first couple weeks of life. Do the guidelines change your treatment at all? Yeah. So the um, not too much um, in that regard. So um, we've traditionally used ampicillin uh, both for group uh, B strep as well as listeria, which listeria, we know it's it's rare. It happens in outbreaks, right? We all sometimes get uh, sort of, you know, from the grocery store, from Costco, you know, you should return that bean dip because it's, there's listeria. But for the most part, it's, it's pretty rare. Um, and that's what ampicillin primarily is used for, as well as enterococcus. That being said, the guideline for the 8 to 21 days essentially says if you're not worried about meningitis, you can use ampicillin and gentamicin or ampicillin and septazidine. If you're worried about meningitis, gentamicin does not cross the blood-brain barrier, and so you should do ampicillin and septazidine. Then as you get older, it starts to shift uh, a little bit. But really, ampicillin is recommended in the first uh, three weeks of life for everybody still. And to your point, because we're waiting for the LP culture, that means that we are using ampicillin and acephalosporin initially. Is that right? Yeah. So I think I, you know, to your point about the um, uh, before about the champagne or the what's we'll called the donation tap. If that happened, um, that if you if you feel like meningitis is unlikely, the child's well appearing, you had the, you know zero white blood cells. It's possible that you could perhaps in that. Uh, patient uh, use ampicillin and gentamicin. I think a lot of us use septazidine for that small chance that there is bacterial meningitis, but gentamicin would also be appropriate. Obviously, we want to be careful about antimicrobial stewardship, and so I think balancing uh, those together. But I think more often it's cephalosporin because we're not sure about men uh, bacterial meningitis. And presumably we're hospitalizing this kid because we just stuck a needle in their spine and started them on IV antibiotics. How long do we monitor him for? Is it is it a Full 48-hour rule out? Is it um, just until we get our culture back? How, how long are we, we keeping them in the hospital? Yeah, so this is uh, another uh, piece where the guideline has certainly adopted some of the um, more recent literature on this in that um, probably somewhere around 90% of pathogens in the blood when they're present and in the CSF grow within the first 24 hours, and then 95% on average blood and CSF pathogens grow within 36 hours. And so your bacterial cultures in most places are run continuously, CSF maybe once or twice a day, so it's a little bit different. But in general, the guidelines have said if at 24 to 36 hours, so less than the classic 40-hour window, if the cultures are negative and the child is clinically improving and you can arrange close follow-up at home, the, the family can, can return if needed, all those sort of support structures in place, that the child should be discharged within 24 to 36 hours. Uh, and then 
the idea is that that, that 40 hour window, that each hour probably above 36, you may catch the rare sort of delayed pathogen growth, but at the expense of continuing to hospitalize, you know, hundreds of infants just to pick up one uh, is probably not just cost effective, but the risks of iatrogenically are probably too much. And so the idea is to send them home a little bit earlier. Great. Should we go on the next Jeff? part of the case? Yeah. Yeah, that was great. I think that was, that was perfect. All right. So I think we could move on now to the next group of infants that the AAP guidelines talk about. So they have a new group, um, 21 to 28 day olds, age 22 to 28 day old infants. So we have Alex, she's a 25 day old infant and she felt warm to touch this afternoon. Mom took a rectal temp and she was 101 degrees. So she brought him to the clinic because she's worried that a fever this high is really bad for him. So I guess my question to you is how and why does your workup change with this slightly over older infant? Yeah, so this was a big change for the guideline. I think certainly in not necessarily in the clinic setting, but in the emergency department setting, and we've done qualitative work and this has been shown in other studies, it really up to that sort of 28 days, the first four weeks of life. Traditionally, the workup is the same as we just described for the 8 to 21 day old blood, urine, blood, CSF, admit on IV antibiotics. What this guideline has really changed is to take that fourth week of life, that 22 to 28 day old, and say that you know there's still a risk of bacteremia, there's still a risk of meningitis, there's obviously still a risk of urinary tract infection, but the risk is, is lower. And um, some of the newer risk stratification algorithms, the two I'll sort of highlight, are um, the step-by-step -step approach, um, which was came out of, uh, of Spain, out of Europe, uh, was validated several years ago, and the more recent two years ago, um, sort of statistically derived and validated PCARM prediction rule. Both use uh, procalcitonin as part of their algorithm, and PCARM did not have an age cutoff, though in their, in their paper they said to have caution in that first really three to four weeks of life, and step-by-step -step approach actually uses age 21 days as their age cutoff. So there's more of an interest in that fourth week of life, and this group seems to be at lower risk than those first three weeks. And so what the guideline has essentially said is that we need to be more cautious than the 29 to 60-day-old, but that you should approach them, you should do the same urine testing, you should do blood testing, but you don't automatically have to do a lumbar puncture up front. And then we'll get to sort of how to sort of handle that because it's a little bit different than the 29 to 60-day-old. And that's, I think, saying, especially, with, especially if you have procalcitonin at your hospital, that those algorithms are highly sensitive. The risk of HSV, while not zero, is probably a little bit lower in that fourth week of life that it's, okay, it's possible to do a little bit less and to risk stratify them differently than the first three weeks. But it mainly has to do with just a lower risk of uh, specifically bacteremia and meningitis. And I, I feel like this is the, the good stuff in the, in the guidelines. Like this is the, the big kind of game changer that's super interesting. And, and this introduction of the abnormal inflammatory markers as a group, can you talk about what the inflammatory markers are? And are these good tests? Are some better than others? Just, you know, incorporating this more formally, how do, how do we approach this? Yeah, so, you know, with, you know, full deference to the historical low-risk criteria, Rochester, Philadelphia, Boston, which at the time, you know, 30 years ago now, they were game changers in terms of, uh, you know, being able to say some infants are low-risk and can be sent home. It was really bold at the time. But all of them uh, use a white blood cell count. Essentially, what multiple studies have now shown, the white blood cell count test characteristics, specifically for invasive bacterial infection, bacteremia, meningitis, are not as good as things like CRP, absolute neutrophil count, and certainly not procalcitonin, which has the best uh, test characteristics, which Europe has used for a while and now we're, it's been adopting more recently. 
So um, I would, what the guideline essentially says, if you have procalcitonin, you should use that, not in isolation, but in combination with other inflammatory markers. What I mean by that is you should use one of the um, procalcitonin-based algorithms. Um, the step-by-step -step approach was, for example, uh, one we adopted at Yale several years ago, which includes age, clinical appearance, urinalysis, um, procalcitonin, CRP, and ANC. The PCARN rule, which is what we've sort of now more recently have used, at least a lot of our, us have done it because that risk stratification algorithm was statistically derived. They use recursive partitioning, which means they sort of did fancy statistics to derive optimal cut points. And what they use is urinalysis, absolute neutrophil count, and procalcitonin together. So if you have procalcitonin, you should use one of those algorithms and risk stratify them using that. If you don't have procalcitonin, this is where it gets a little more tricky because what the guideline recommends by not using white blood cell counts, so you're not using the historical low risk criteria, is to use a combination of height of fever, fever over 38.5, absolute neutrophil count, and C-reactive protein uh, together. And that would actually be a change for a lot of sites that have traditionally used a white blood cell count based algorithm to decide how to incorporate those three together because each one alone is not good enough for risk stratification, but together, hopefully it can um, give you, you know, if, if it's all negative, so meaning low temperature, less than 35, normal ANC, normal uh, CRP, that the risk hopefully is low. That being said, I would say procalcitonin is where we're going, and I think a lot of centers now are beginning to use that, and the guideline really clearly says if you have it, you should use it as, one, as part of one of the algorithms that I mentioned. And so I'll, I'll keep going, but you guys should chime in. Um, so I think, you know, one of the big parts of this is because, as you mentioned, they're, they're slightly lower risk than the 21 and below age group, is this question of whether or not to do a lumbar puncture. And so can you talk a little bit about that decision and, and maybe even, you know, what's so bad about an unnecessary lumbar puncture and IV antibiotics? Why is this a decision point and, and how do you kind of approach it in this, in this new age range? Yeah, and this is certainly, you know, um, you know, been an interest of mine is sort of how to, you know, what are parents' perceptions of the lumbar puncture? What are clinicians' sort of varying risk tolerances? And how do we sort of engage parents in, in some of these, uh, you know, decisions when appropriate? So I think what the guideline says for this age group is that if you have a, um, if your urinalysis is either negative or positive, so even if you have a positive analysis, it's okay in terms of this decision, but you have to have negative inflammatory markers. So no matter what algorithm you use, it has to be negative. And what it says is you may perform a lumbar puncture. What that, essentially the may is, and what they write in the guideline essentially is being shared decision-making uh, with the parent. So essentially sort of engaging them around here are the risks and potential benefits of doing a lumbar puncture versus not. And I think that the, some of the risk of doing one, one certainly, I think for a, for a lot of parents, you know, especially if they recently had an epidural, for example, as part of you know, sort of labor and delivery, now we're talking about putting a needle as safe as we all sort of know lumbar punctures are in general. It's, the, it's painful for the baby. It can certainly be painful and stressful for the parent. Um, so that's one. Um, two, there are rare, serious risks, but those are very rare. But the, some of the other risks are that if you attempt it and you, don't, and you aren't able to interpret it or you aren't able, it was not successful, that's been shown in the literature to result in sort of more hospitalization. So I think those are some of the risks you have to weigh against the risks of um, if we don't do it, there's this small and the guideline sort of has provided some risk estimates. It's very low, but it's not zero. Risk of that baby still could have bacterial meningitis. And then you have to make sure the parent sort of fully understands that. The idea is that then you sort of may, which means you may do lumbar puncture or you may engage them around this decision and, and see. The caveat, though, to that is if you don't do lumbar puncture, what the guideline recommends is that the infant be admitted off antibiotics, basically, or I think, I think actually, I, have to, I should clarify, it could be off or with antibiotics, but the child is supposed to be admitted to the hospital. If you do the lumbar puncture, 
and it's normal, so say you get another donation tap, uh, for example, then you have the option of sending the infant home. Again, it's a May, so you sort of want to talk to the parents about the risks and benefits, but about sending the infant home after a dose of antibiotics, so like ceftriaxone, for example, and having them have close follow-ups. So it's almost like a two-level decision where you have to decide to do the lumbar puncture. If you don't do it, child's being admitted. If you do do it and it's normal, then the parent could potentially uh, go home. And this is where the recommendation is to engage parents around this decision with the caveat that it has to be with negative inflammatory markers. You have to have good follow-up at home, all of those things. Can you talk a little bit how, how that discussion is for you, like if you were to approach a parent? Because honestly, one of the, the biggest things I get is I, I may have a patient who or a parent who just doesn't understand and they're like, I don't know, doc, just tell me what to do. Like, how, how do you go about that? Can, can you sort of, do you have a script that you, you go about that might help us discuss this a little better? Yes. So it's, um, it's I will say in, in this emergency department setting, which could be any time of day or night, and again, to the point we talked about before where parents are understandably stressed, they're tired. You also have to make sure you're not burdening the parent with a lot of information and burdening them with the decision on, gosh, if I don't do the lumbar puncture, my baby has meningitis, that's a burden for me to decide versus, oh my gosh, am I, am I going to decide to put my baby through this really, you know, what to them is understandably a difficult uh, procedure. And so I try to be sensitive to that fact. And one, I sort of try to get a sense for the parents of, hey, here's the decision. I think the important thing is, say, here's the decision point that we're at. Here's, you know, I use the word spinal tap. I don't say lumbar puncture to most parents. Um, and I sort of first get a sense from them, like, here's the sort of options we're thinking about. And where are they? Do they want to engage in this discussion about the sort of risks and benefits? Or do they feel, hey, you know, like, you just tell me what to do? I would say probably most parents, I think, if presented with the option to be engaged, would want to be. And I will say shared decision making and what the guideline says does not mean that as a physician you can't give your opinion. Often we, you, you are welcome to and say, hey, here's the risks and benefits. I want to understand from you now that I've talked about these things what's important to you? Is it that you want to avoid this painful procedure? Is it that you don't want to miss meningitis? And, I, and then I'm going to tailor sort of my recommendation to you. Or is it, hey, I, I recommend that we do the lumbar puncture. I think it's the safest thing to do, but I want to hear your opinion too. And I think you're right. A lot of parents, at least in some of the qualitative work we've done, some parents absolutely want to be very involved in decision-making. Other parents would defer that. And I think it's going to, you have to tailor it. I think the key though, back to the point about equity, we have to make sure that we're approaching it to the, in the same way to every parent. That doesn't mean we're going to use the same language as every parent, but that we're giving every parent, regardless of race, ethnicity, language, an equal opportunity to engage in that decision to the degree that they want to. And I think that's important. We have to be mindful of that, that we're, that we're not engaging certain parents and others we're being more paternalistic with, for example. So I think we just have to approach it um, sensitively and um, meet the parent where they are, but make sure we're doing it equitably. And just to circle back on the antibiotics, um you know, we admitted this patient to the hospital we already talked about. We decided whether or not we were going to do the uh, do the lumbar puncture. Um, when you choose to start antibiotics, how does this one choose between the 21 to 28-year-old versus the uh, 8 to 21-day-old? Yeah, so what the, what the guideline um, recommends here is that if you're not worried about bacterial meningitis, that you can use ceftriaxone alone. So you don't need the ampicillin anymore because listeria um, becomes, one, it's rare anyway, but it becomes less. Now, it's interesting, ceftriaxone, traditionally, we've often used above 28 days because of the concern about displacing uh, bilirubin from albumin, though it's a rare risk. But I think that what they're saying is 21 to 28 days is going to be pretty rare. Very few infants are going to be, uh, you know, have hyperbilia at this age. It's safe. With meningitis, the recommendation is very similar. If you, you know, do the lumbar puncture and you're worried about meningitis based on the lumbar puncture result, based on how the infant looks, you should use ampicillin plus that ceftazidine, uh, again, to treat them uh, empirically uh, for bacterial meningitis. But the biggest difference is using ceftriaxone alone without ampicillin if you're not concerned about bacterial meningitis. 
And I've had a couple of cases where a patient comes in and either got antibiotics started before the LP or had gone to their primary care the day before, was diagnosed with an ear infection, started on an antibiotic, and then comes to the ED with concern for a bacterial infection. This is breaking off from the guidelines, I think, a bit. But can you talk a little bit about this concept of partially treated meningitis? If Is this something where if they got antibiotics, the culture yield is low enough that you would ever be forced to empirically treat for bacterial meningitis? Yeah, so you raise uh, the good point that the guideline says that that is not an exclusion itself for the guideline to receive the antibiotics within 40 hours, which is interesting because I think that a lot of us have thought about sort of once our antibiotics, our traditional thinking has been we just can't interpret anything, and so we have to then do everything, meaning we do urine, blood, CSF. We, we have to assume they have an infection because we some of the cultures may be uninterpretable. And what the guideline really says, you have to sort of individualize it. And I think that comes down to risk tolerance. So I think to me, it sort of depends. I think there is, um, you know, potentially a risk. So there's some studies of varying age groups that show the time to, you know, for example, CSF pathogens that they clear, you know, if they're meningococcemia, if they're pneumococcus based on antibiotic treatment, anywhere from one to like, you know, several hours, for example. I think you could argue that an infant who's on oral amoxicillin, for example, for a day or two, and who's coming in with a fever, the idea of partially treated meningitis being that we're sort of partially treating it. I'm not convinced that amoxicillin itself is going to treat meningitis, and so would I sort of do things differently? I think it, the, it's a very individualized decision is the short answer. I think I would probably still manage them per the guideline, but maybe my threshold for doing a lumbar puncture would be, would be lower, meaning um, you can still interpret the CSF cell count, even though the culture may or may not be uh, interpretable. So I would say a lot of us would be more cautious in that setting, just because we don't have a lot of data about how it changes some of these risk stratification. For example, in, uh, with the, uh, the PCAR and prediction rule, the very nice study that was published two years ago, those infants who got antibiotics in 40 hours were not included in, that, in their study, just because they're hard to interpret. So I think we just don't have a lot of data on them. So I think I would say be cautious. You can probably still apply the guideline, but it's going to be very individualized. And I would, in general, recommend caution until we have more data on how to better manage those patients. So I think the biggest question left in my mind is if I'm following the guidelines and I decide, you know what, I don't want to perform an LP on this child, but I still need to admit them to the hospital. Am I going to start the antibiotics or not? And I, I just, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, I would, you know, I, I think this, I'll answer it two ways. I think one is that I still, despite, you know, what we just sort of uh, discussed, don't want to, quote, mask an infection in, this, in the chance that maybe the child's clinical status changes on antibiotics and now someone wants to do a lumbar puncture later. You also have to balance that with saying there's still this, you know, very small risk of bacterial meningitis, also a small risk of bacteremia. And am I leaving the child unprotected for 24 hours um, where I could have intervened and given them antibiotics and now they're going to have a worse outcome? I think that I will say that in terms of thinking about outcomes of febrile infants, most infants reported in the literature who had a delayed diagnosis of meningitis or bacteremia have been reported to do well, but they're very small in number, so we don't have a lot of reports on infants who sort of didn't do well with, with a delay in treatment, but we just don't have large numbers. So I would say to me, I think um, I would generally probably emit them off of antibiotics. However, I think this is also a good point, thinking that you know we don't uh, operate or we shouldn't operate in silos in medicine. And so I often will pick up the phone and talk to my, if I'm at a, you know, again, if, you, if you're at a setting where this is possible, to talk to the admitting hospitalist to say, hey, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm doing, is this comfortable with you? Or if I'm sending an infant home, you know, this, this age group, this 22 to 28 day, 
may be a change for some general pediatricians in the community. And if I'm sending them child home now, and this would be a big change, and I have to assess their comfort level with all this decision-making as well. So I think it's going to be really important to operate as a unit, and that unit includes the family, of course, and the parents, the caregivers, the guardians, uh, to make sure that we are all having a shared sort of mental model about what we think the appropriate sort of treatment is uh, and make sure we're all in agreement. I think that's going to be really important in this age group to have consensus in that moment with the multiple uh, stakeholders who are involved in that child's care. This is great. I, I do have one question I should have asked at the beginning. The 21-day-old, are they in the the 8 to 21-day or the greater than 21-day? Like, if you hit 21 days, like, where are you at? <laughs> yeah, so I would say, so what the guideline says is 8 to 21 is its own age group, and then it's 22 to 28. And that's based on several studies, including one that we did where we saw that 21-day that age group seems to be at least in several studies, the sort of a, a cut point that, that the risk goes starts to go down. That being said, I remember um, in my training, we used to use 56 days in terms of like our upper uh, age cutoff. And as a resident, it would be 11.59 p.m. And the child was 56 days. Right, and if right. we went in the room one minute later, they were 57 days and magically they'd become no risk at all of any of these infections. So I think we also have to obviously sort of tailor it a little bit and there's a gray area. These cutoffs are meant to be sort of guidelines, but there is a little bit of wiggle room, but technically the 22 to 28 day is what the age group is. Should we move on to the next part? Let's do it. I think we, before we move on, should could we talk a little bit about like sending these kids home? If you decide you're going to send them home, like what conditions need to be met? And Yeah. So I think, so this for this 22 to 28 day age group, you know, this is contingent on uh, a normal uh, CSF testing. And for the 29 to 60 age group, the other factors are the same for this age group as well. What that means is that you have to do really, really good discharge instructions with a family to sort of c communicate that, you know, the story doesn't necessarily end here, that we've everything looks promising and that your child does not have one of these more serious infections that we talked about, you know, urinary tract infection, et cetera. But until we, these things called cultures, you know, take time to grow, um, usually up to 24 to 36 hours, uh, that we need you to have close, you need to closely monitor your child at home, and you need to have close follow-up. And so ideally, you should arrange follow-up with a pediatrician or with a primary care uh, physician within the 24 hours um, afterwards and give the parents very clear instructions that the child's feeding is going poorly, they're not urinating, they're excessively fussy, all these things that, you know, they're going to, if they have a fever, they're not going to be their normal cells, but are we having a clinical change that's getting worse? then they need to come right back. And I would say, you know, and we've all had it. We've had an infant who's been low risk. And, you know, there's going to be infants who are low risk who have bacteremia, for example. And at least a lot in the literature and both clinical practice, a lot of the parents, they, they come back. And that's uh, in many ways a success and that, it, you know, that they've came back. They listened to the discharge instructions. But I think it's really important to sort of be very clear, both verbally and written, and to communicate with the pediatrician that here's the plan. And if you can't arrange those things, so if the parent doesn't feel comfortable going home, if the pediatrician doesn't be able to see them, I think then you have to think carefully about whether um, you know home is the right choice versus we admit the child, which has its own risk. But you, if you can't guarantee that support structure, especially in this 22 to 28 day age group, going home safely is contingent on those things. Excellent. Thank you. Chancellor Sam, you want to do the next case? All right, I'll take this one. I was going to say, um, I haven't heard Sam in a while. <laughs> I know, I'll take this one. Age 29 to 60 day old infants. Allie is a seven week old infant. Um, she's had nasal congestion for two days. When she arrives to the clinic, her temperature is 102 Fahrenheit. Her lungs are clear without any evidence of bronchiolitis. So again, now we're looking at the 29 to 68 day old group. 
what would your uh, recommended workup be and how does this change? Yeah, so um, so the 29 to 60 day age group, I think um, in many ways, the recommendations are sort of similar to what I think practice has been heading towards or in many centers is probably at already, which is that we risk stratify them based on urine testing and, and blood testing. And what this guideline really changed actually, so they have a nice sort of, they have several pathways as part of the guideline. They certainly you know, have arrows in different directions depending on different tests. But actually inflammatory markers is actually above urinalysis. And so what they're sort of saying in this age group, 29 to 60 days, is that certainly urinalysis positive, so you're not going to be worried about urinary tract infection, needs antibiotics. But that should not influence your decision on doing a lumbar puncture. It's all about sort of inflammatory markers. And if essentially, if your inflammatory markers are, are negative, so you either use a procalcitonin-based algorithm or the combination of fever and absolute neutrophil count and CRP, and that you do not they only say shared decision making. They say you do not have to do a lumbar puncture and you do not need to admit the child. Obviously, you would give them antibiotics in some form uh, for a positive urinalysis, but if the urinalysis is negative, they said you don't, no antibiotics. Again, very similar. You can send them home if, if you can arrange follow up, if the parents are comfortable, if they can monitor the child, et cetera. But really, it's what they're saying is this age group is lower risk. We have very good data now on these different risk stratification algorithms that, in the setting of a normal inflammatory markers, especially normal procalcitonin based algorithms, that the risk of meningitis and bacteremia is, is very low, not zero, but pretty close to it, and that you can safely manage the child at home off antibiotics. And one question for this age group where we're really focused on urine tract infection, urinary tract infections, in that first step where it talks about obtaining a urinalysis, do you have, I feel like a great icebreaker for pediatric emergency medicine doctors would be favorite way to collect urine. Do you immediately go for catheterized urine? Do you do this quick wee method, the suprapubic rub? Are there any tricks that you can share about trying to, to trick the urine out of a, an infant, or do you just go straight in with the tube? I, I would say I would say traditionally, and I can't speak for every uh, emergency medicine physician, but certainly in the, multi, the several hospitals I've, I've worked clinically at, that I would say we have traditionally done a catheterization. The thought is you can do it once, you get the culture. It's obviously you shouldn't send um, a culture from a bag specimen, for example, and it's just sort of the most straightforward. However, um, what has more recently adopted is doing things like, you know, bladder ultrasound to make sure that, you know, we're going in when there's actually urine. But the guideline really says for this age group is that you should, essentially you can use a bag specimen or one of these other sort of clean catch methods. So you, I think one method you're describing is the quick wee method it was called, uh, where you essentially, obviously you clean the area very well, take, you know, send like a cold sort of gauze sponge and you sort of basically sort of uh, do some you know circles around their their bladder area and that and there's some sites that they will sort of pee and it can sort of you know reduce the need for calf basically. I admit I have not uh, adopted that method a, as much just because we've always traditionally done the catheterization. However, with the guidelines sort of recommendations and especially saying that you do a urinalysis first followed by culture if it's positive, I am planning to adopt one of these methods. There's another method too where you I've, uh, I'm not sure if there's a name for it where you sort of hold the baby up and you sort of uh, rub the lumbar sacral area and tap the bladder area. And also another way to do a clean catch. That may have a name as well. I think the quick read method is the one I'm sort of more familiar with. It seems a little more easy, like one person could do it. But I will, I'm planning to adopt it, uh, at least try it, and we'll see. I, I imagine there'll be more studies coming out now that the guidelines have come out that maybe people will start adopting these methods and seeing how well they work. So, so what inherently is the issue with just doing a bag method? So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think that the, the issue is mostly, I mean, assuming you've cleaned well, the issue is mostly time and just that you're just kind of waiting around for it. And of course, you can't send a culture of it. So the idea of these other methods is that it just it results in quicker urine obtainment versus just waiting for the bag, basically. 
And so that's the biggest downside for the bag, especially in a busy emergency department. There's just the time involved and you're waiting for it. Um, especially if you, if you say you did inflammatory markers and they're positive and you want to give antibiotics, sort of want to make sure you're not giving antibiotics where you get the urine, if you can avoid it. So I think the other methods may help you to get more rapid urine collection, basically. And so we talked a little bit about, but for this age group, if a patient seems to have upper respiratory infections or gets an RVP and does test positive for a common viral infection, do viral symptoms or a positive RVP in this population really kind of change your thinking at all or still kind of not really? Yeah, so I would say certainly, um, you know, during my residency and, and during my fellowship, uh, before we were using, for example, the procalcitonin-based algorithms, with the algorithms we were using uh, included, uh, at least what I trained, uh, routine CSF testing, that if you had a positive RSV or a positive influenza, that the risk seemed to be lower, especially in that second month of life, especially for things like meningitis. And so I would, you know, not automatically do the lumbar puncture in that case. I think what's changed now is we have these algorithms, I'll use the PCARN rule as an example, where you have you know, three parts of it, urinalysis, ANC, and Procal. And if you have none of those things, if none of those are positive, your risk of invasive bacterial infection is, is very low. It's not zero, but it's very low. And so almost, when it's unclear if a viral test would add to that. I think that we need to see the data on whether viral tests can further sort of reduce the risk. And I, you know, imagine, you know, hopefully that study will sort of you know, come out um, in, in the future. Um, I think where it does, I think, change regards to the guideline is the guideline says if you have a positive inflammatory marker, whatever one you're using, height of temperature, ANC, procalcitonin, that lumbar puncture is a choice. It's a may do it. And I think that a lot of us traditionally view these um, sort of risk stratification algorithms as binary and that if you, are, if you are low risk, you're low risk. And if you have anything positive, you're high risk. What the algorithm is saying is that the risk is still low, uh, meaning that um, you know it's not like if you have a positive, whatever test you're using, procalcitonin CRP, that you clearly have bacteremia. The risk goes up, but it's not you know it's still a, a few percentage. I would say at least that's what the guideline says. And so I think what there a viral test perhaps could help you. So if I'm doing if I'm doing you know say using um, height of temperature and the child has a fever of 38.7, their CRP is a little bit up, but they look well and they're RSV positive, I would still admit that child. I don't think I would be so bold to say, okay, positive inflammatory marker. I would perhaps, my own practice, feel comfortable sending them home, but I would maybe feel comfortable, you know, RSV positive plus these very mildly elevated inflammatory markers. The risk of meningitis is still pretty low. I might feel comfortable, but that's going to be a very individualized choice. But I could see some um, sort of perhaps viral testing working in that regard, though that's not where they necessarily have been studied. I think we need further study to cl clarify that. But that's what I could see in the future, perhaps with um, additional investigation using viral testing. And so for these kids that, again, were in the age group of 29 to 60, if they do have increased inflammatory markers, the guideline says to may perform the LP. And to your, your point, you know, some of these other might be plus ones for being lower risk for meningitis. Are there things that do make you tend towards wanting to lumbar puncture a, you know, 55-day-old child? Yeah, so I think, you know, certainly we'll, we'll take all the exclusions aside. Obviously, if the child's ill-appearing, and that trumps everything. If you think the infant's ill-appearing, if they have a high-risk chronic condition, for example, they're very premature, all those things that might increase their risk, that factors in. But at least per the guideline, I think traditionally most of us, and I think, you know, many institutions have clinical pathways that essentially says if you're high risk or not low risk, you have a positive inflammatory mark, whatever it may be that you're using that puts you in the high-risk category. The tradition is to do lumbar puncture and, and admit to the hospital. I think, you know, that's because most of the algorithms have been binary. Um, I'm interested to see as we go forward if they become sort of less binary, meaning 
can we, you know, will there be more data that shows us that one inflammatory marker is, is sort of more significant than another one. I will say what has changed is the positive urinalysis used to be a part of that equation where if someone had a positive urinalysis up, you are high risk by any algorithm that you're using. I think what the guidelines say, which is consistent with a lot of the data that's come out, is that a positive urinalysis alone does not increase your risk of meningitis. And so a positive urinalysis in isolation should not mean a lumbar puncture. In fact, it says need not do a lumbar puncture in that setting, which means you don't, uh, you don't have to. So I would say to me, uh, in terms of inflammatory market, I think procalcitonin to me, based on the literature, is that has the best sort of ROC curve, means it's the best balance of sensitivity and specificity. So I tend to sort of value that one the most. But um, I think a lot of us have to sort of reconcile our own risk tolerance when faced with a positive inflammatory marker and how to handle it. It's going to come down to our own sort of risk tolerance, the practice setting you're in, uh, uh, et cetera. But I think traditionally, a lot of us have just automatically gone to lumbar puncture, and it'll be interesting to see if that changes over time. And how about antibiotic choice? If a patient has an LP that the cell count is suggestive of meningitis, how does that change your antibiotic versus a patient that maybe has no clear source that's identified, but is febrile and has some inflammatory markers that are elevated? Yep. Uh, so a couple of things with regards to antibiotics, which also actually the guideline uh, did change in this regard, which I'll get to. So I think for meningitis, and this is similar to what I've done traditionally, is that you want to treat sort of broadly for gram-negative and gram-positive. So really sort of ceftriaxone or ceftazidime plus um, vancomycin is what's recommended because it's considered like a resistant strep pneumo or um, some sort of resistant gram-positive organism. I think some institutional guidelines have also, and this goes beyond this guideline, will say if you have gram-negative uh, rods, for example, or, or some sort of gram-negative organism on gram stain, that you should even be more aggressive and kind of aggressively consult your ID because gram-negative meningitis is a really bad thing. And so you may even be more broad in, in that case with things like you know um, mirapenem or other sort of similar uh, drugs. If you don't have meningitis, uh, the general recommendation is triaxone, for example, to treat empirically. With the caveat being that if you have a positive urinalysis but you have negative inflammatory markers, uh, the recommendation from the guidelines is that you should actually treat them with oral antibiotics. So if you have a presumed UTI, but everything else looks reassuring, so negative inflammatory markers, the recommendation is really to treat them with oral antibiotics, potentially even at home, and actually that sort of, they don't go hand in hand, but could treat that infant at home with oral antibiotics, which I think a lot of general pediatricians are doing, some emergency uh, medicine physicians are doing, but for some of us, maybe a change, to sort of send home that one to two month old, that 29 to 60 day old, with a positive urinalysis on oral antibiotics, something like cephalexin, so not the, uh, the, the generic name, uh, or cefixim is another one uh, that people have used, so it's not as available. And of course, we would be following up, trying to follow up our best with those cultures, right, after, after we send them home empirically. Exactly. Yeah, and that's a good point, I think, too. If you are sending these children home, you have to ensure that someone's following up the culture. You know, sometimes they get called to the emergency, the ordering physician, which, for example, if it's a resident ordering it, you know, now they've maybe moved on to the next rotation the next day or something, that you have to just ensure that you have a good follow-up plan to make sure that um, someone's following up the cultures in the, in the small chance that they become positive or with a urine culture that the antibiotic that the child's on uh, is the appropriate one. I also just want to echo, you mentioned one of my favorite meningitis pearls, and that's um, why do we use vancomycin? And it's for the, the strep pneumo-resistant antibiotics more so than, than MRSA, which I think is always a, a fun teaching point. Yeah, absolutely. Sam, uh, I know, being conscious of time, are there other things that you think we should hit on, or should we go to kind of the wrap-up questions? Um, and I actually have one, I have one more question that's a little bit, it might be a little silly, um, and so we can always take this out. But, uh, but you know, for more of us younger uh, clinicians, you know, residents, uh, medical students, you know, we talk about these guidelines are made for the well-appearing infant. 
Can you help us describe and define the well-appearing if it just we I just don't want to be silly and uh and be a little crazy here, but like I gotta start with that in order to actually go down these guidelines pathway. Yes. So um the uh I would say good news or bad news, depending on how you look at it, is that we know that well appearance and ill appearance are sort of are subjective and that it probably differs by clinician based on comfort level. So the good answer is you and at your level of training, at my level of training. You know, I have my own sort of definition. You may have your own, and, and we're not necessarily who is right. It sort of comes down to a personal sort of assessment. I think the things that most of us use are we kind of use the Yale observation scale and not in its purest form because it's a scale of six factors that you rate on, on a scale, but more about how the infant's interacting with the environment. You know, are they consolable? Um, what's their breathing pattern? What's their color like? Are they sort of, you know, they don't have the social cues um, at this age, but um, what's their tone like? Those are the type of things that we would sort of look. And I think for a lot of us who've seen the ill-appearing infant, like the infants I have seen who've had a bacterial meningitis, as an example, come to mind, poor tone, excessively fussy, where they're very difficult for, to console, for example. But I think to me, I, the way I have sort of teach and I've, you know, often, you know, work with some of our great emergency medicine colleagues who work in general emergency departments who you know, take care of very sick people, but maybe see only a handful of febrile infants in their career. Uh, and so their sort of gestalt for what a well-appearance versus ill-appearance is going to be different. Just like if I had an adult patient in my ED, my sort of gestalt is going to be very different from someone who's an expert in that area. And so to me, it's more that if you are not comfortable with how the child looks, if you are not sure if they're well-appearing, then to me, erring on the side of caution is the appropriate thing to do. Um, meaning that sort of doing more in that case, if you are not, by doing more, I mean, if you if you have a decision about lumbar puncture, you should probably do it if you're just not sure if the child's well-appearing or not is the best sort of uh, advice that I would give. I love my favorite phrase. The Yale observation scores has response to social overtures as the response is if the, the kid smiles in response. And I, I always thought that was very poetic. Yes. I think that's a challenge in this age group is that the social smile just isn't there yet for the vast majority of them. And so that's why as, as great as the scale is, it just, it's just unfortunately in this age group, it's just, they don't give us the same cues. And so we have to sort of use these other factors. And it's why we do all the testing that we do. So one of my favorite questions is at near the end is sort of what do you see in the future? Like what what are the cool things that you see coming up, things that are maybe experimental? What's the future of fibril infant management and how, where is it going these days? Yeah, so I think this this falls into several sort of tiers. So I, I think one is we've already mentioned about sort of looking at disparities in care and health equity. And that's, I think, a lens that I think for a lot of us and myself included have, for, you know, for a long time have could have done a better job of sort of including that in the ongoing sort of way in our research. I think that's obviously now it's a, it's a field that is long overdue to have a lot of research across disciplines. And I think that's an important area that we need to follow with febrile infants and make sure we're providing equitable care. In terms of like diagnostics, I talked about some of the risk stratification algorithms, for example, the PCARN rule, um, which, you know, was um, derived, came out two years ago. You know, they, um, they presented it at our recent uh, pediatric academic societies, meaning that they have a whole another prospective cohort in which they're validating their rules. So they will, I'm sure, you know, be publishing that data at some point about validating their rule. They have a lot of data they presented at AAP um, a year ago about kids with uh, infants with positive analysis. I think a lot of those prospective cohorts will have a lot of rich data that will help answer some of these questions that we just sort of described and giving us, you know, sort of better risk estimates, which algorithm is the one that we should all, you know, be using those type of questions. PCARN also, actually, their main sort of um, initial sort of studies is aimed at RNA uh, biosignatures, which is sort of the, essentially the host response, the white blood cell response to infection. Essentially, the gene expression is going to be different for viruses versus bacteria for certain types of viruses. And they published a nice paper in JAMA several years ago that sort of was their preliminary data. 
that potentially could be the future where you have send one blood test off, you run this sort of microarray panel and look at the RNA and gene expression, and then that tells you bacteria versus virus. And that's obviously a, we're a little ways off from that, but that is sort of another long-term goal. And the other piece is um, how to sort of have this engagement with parents that we talked about. You know, how do we implement this in, in the ED? It's sort of not that it's the ED is its own unique setting. It is unique in its own way, but, you know, in this type of environment with these parents who've been home for such a short period of time, they're tired, et cetera. We're talking about serious infections in their baby. Um, how do we sort of engage parents around some of these decisions? How do we help them understand? And then what are the sort of outcomes of that are some interesting areas to think about in the future as well? And I've also heard you talk a little bit about the machine learning study. Can you talk a little bit about how machine learning might be used in this field or in others. I think that was just fascinating. Yeah, so that was a study that Opal came out with uh, about a year ago or so using the PCRN data. And I'm sure others are going to be exploring this uh, as well. Where they sort of, you know, machine learning become very popular for risk stratification and prediction modeling, where you sort of use a computer basically to identify all these factors in a way that a, a human brain that can do better than a human brain. I think the challenge of, of of machine learning in general, I think, for any risk stratification, whether it be sepsis or febrile infants or any disease, is that it's really meant to be, I think, be embedded in an electronic health record. It's not that's not how we traditionally have used these things, which is like I, I've memorized the PCAR rule in my head. You know, um, I think we all have. We all memorize whatever pathway we're using. Um, these are not meant to do that. A lot of these machine learning don't actually tell you the numbers. Essentially, meant to like be put into an algorithm and then sort of give you a risk estimate. It's very exciting, but I think the challenge with those is one they need to be validated and all that, but also is how do you integrate that? Because this is a little bit of a different model of thinking where a computer sort of spits it out, but we don't really know how it got there. Versus right now, where we are seeing the data, we're applying it to the algorithm. I think that's the sort of interesting challenge about how machine learning will be used in the future. I think, you know, I don't think that's going to right now be the new standard of febrile infant care at this moment, but it'll be interesting to see how that gets sort of integrated. And part of it's going to be how you implement it, how we think about it as, as clinicians. Very cool. Very cool. You got it, Jess. This was this was such a great episode. I'm so excited to see my next febrile infant. I'd love to just hear kind of what are your biggest take home points for our learners. Yep. So I um I think that the sort of take home message I think in general are that one that the the good news is in terms of febrile infants it's a it's a population of that I thought when I was a resident that we had all the answers to. So I you know where I trained we used you know particular sort of you know algorithm. Uh, and I would teach the medical students, this is what we do, and this is what clearly everyone does in the world. And I think what we realize is that everyone does things differently, all with the same goal in mind, which is to not miss basic bacterial infections, but to balance that against the harms of sort of over-treatment, so to speak. And so I think the take-home message to me from the guidelines is that, one, there's a lot of smart people who are doing a lot of research in this area and trying to sort of make things better on different folds, which is great. And I think the guideline pro provides a nice, a nice summary of where we are currently. Um, and so to me, the take-home messages are that we have the three different age groups are the big one. And so 8 to 21 days, do as we always do, including obviously think about HSV. The 22 to 28 days, as, as you mentioned, um, is sort of the group that's sort of next frontier in some ways in terms of maybe titrating our management. It'll be very interesting to see how that sort of plays out over time as, as the guidelines sort of are published longer and people do continue to work. So I think the key is just that sort of our goal is to safely do less, um, but to break it up by the three age groups to, for certain decisions, especially in that 22 to 20 day age group, engage parents to some, you know, to the degree that we feel comfortable and that parents feel comfortable around some of those decisions. And ultimately, I think sort of, you know, going forward is to make sure that we are sort of reassessing this evidence over time. The evidence will continue to change. The guidelines are great. You know, I give so much credit to all the people, uh, the multidisciplinary group, the, the subcommittee on federal infants who put work into it, but the evidence will continue to change. And that's going to help, I think, answer some of these unanswered uh, questions. 
and last but certainly not least, um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything I would uh, like to plug? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think there's, as I mentioned, there's several sort of research groups, you know, I know PCARM being one of them who are doing exciting work. So keep looking out for those. Um, uh, I am part of um, uh, uh, the AAP has a, a reducing uh, uh, ex, uh, so reducing excessive variation in sepsis evaluation uh, called Revise. It's called Revise 2. There was the original Revise product. Essentially, it's a QI collaborative that several years ago did QI around some uh, metrics about sort of standardizing febrile infant care. And the AAP, tied to certain recommendations in the guideline, is aimed to do the same thing through a QI methodology, help sites of all sites, but especially you know, community sites included, just sort of make sure that we're sort of you know, meeting certain metrics around uh, some of the recommendations in the guideline. Again, not necessarily the ones that we, some of the ones we discussed, which are more sort of perhaps, uh, I don't want to say controversial, but more ones that will take some time to sort of people adapt and get their heads around, but for, to make sure that we're sort of standardizing care for certain metrics. So that, that, that is a product that was just launched uh, through the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we hope people will join you know, the QI collaborative and help sort of standardize care around some of these recommendations. Excellent. Awesome. We'll check it out. This was so wonderful. I feel like we covered a lot of the material in the guidelines and also outside the guidelines. We could not have asked for a better guest. Thank you so much for for sharing your time, your expertise. Um, We really appreciate having you on. No, thanks so much. Uh, This is great. Everyone should listen to the Curbsiders uh, and the Curbsiders um, and and, and, your benefits. This is great that you all do this. And thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's uh, for the kids. Get show notes <laughs> at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any podcast player. You can email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com and we'll answer most questions. So shoot us a note. A special thanks to our wonderful producers for this episode, Dr. Jessica Kelly and Dr. Sam Mazur. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Jess Kelly. I've been Sam Mazur. And you know, uh, now that we're at the end, I, I, I would say we've been talking about champagne taps and Miller High Life. If anyone wants to make this into like a drinking game, anytime we say pecan, have a sip. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. See y'all. Cheers. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.